Hello and welcome back to the Information Systems Digest podcast. I'm your host, Cassandra Grunstrom, and this is episode two, part two, a continuation with Eric Montero on the past, present, and future of information systems. In our last episode, we mostly reflected on the past and examined the boundaries of definitions of information systems, whereas in this episode, we'll focus more on talking about the present and potential future of IS. I think that by reflecting on the past, we've sort of brought our considerations to the present in terms of our perspectives of what's happening in information systems today. The current state of the information systems discipline, like like many others, sees emergence of old and new trends such as artificial intelligence, digital transformation, digitalization, datification of society, uh, just, just to name a few. Really, we see these trends appear, which are more and more evident in calls from journals for special issues that address these topics or conference tracks that collect and connect people that have interests in in the same vein. Although I haven't been in the information systems discipline for for a very long time, only five years, I have been witness to the emergence and popularity of, of some of these in, in my, my time here. And what we see in terms of research-driven tracks, conferences, topics, calls, special issues, really points to our current state of mind and our areas of interest as well. So in in part one, we actually talked about inaugural definitions from MISQ editors about what it is that is information systems and what it represents, how the significance to IS actually influence or shapes what we're researching. And Eric is actually the new senior editor starting this year of MISQ. Congratulations, by the way, Eric. It's a pretty great achievement. Yeah, thanks. Thanks. So as the new senior editor, Eric was actually telling me before this recording that um, that he had to write this sort of blurb about his perspective and thoughts on the, the role as a senior editor. And I went online and I read it in advance. And there's this nice little quote that I think you had there that maybe we can discuss. And what Eric says is relevance trumps rigor. So what do you think is relevant for people right now? That's a quite fair question. Um, I'm not big on making strong claims like, oh, this is what everyone should do. My intentions behind that phrase, if I can unpack it a little, is that the real loyalty is to the phenomenon and what's happening in our world with you know people's lives and private professional lives. Um, and I think there is an ongoing need to remind people about the significance of the phenomena of digitalization and how that influences everyone's life and the uh, potential you know, overemphasis on rigor is creating a normal science trajectory where you know, we get better and better at addressing smaller and smaller issues. So I'd say it's obviously a pragmatic statement. What I intended to signal and have an ambition for is to worry about the larger picture and making sure that we study, that what we study never lose completely its impact in the outside world, in people's lives, to maintain the sense, as it were, what is really relevant and important. Clearly, you know, different authors would have different views on what constitutes impact, what is important. So I'm very happy to have people having their own opinions on on what matters. I think it's more about making 
that argument about why something matters and makes that as compelling as possible. So you do need an argument about relevance. Um, and uh, again, not let's, let us slip into to this fallacy of, of normal science with, with smaller and smaller details. At least this is basically my thinking. Not having scientific rigor, to use your words, but rather drawing from context and phenomenon at the time, like writing about a pandemic two years ago would have probably been quite unpopular. But now a lot of what we see today in calls is for insight into things like contract tracing and activities related to what has happened during the last year, which of course is particularly interesting for the IS discipline because technology is so interwoven into the fabric of our society and our response to the pandemic. Yeah, and for... Anyone um, engaging in, you know, with the central outlets, journal conferences, and the like, there is this long, long, you know, almost inherent, I would say, could you know, debate around rigor versus relevance. Um, and you know, I don't want to get into you know the long history here, but uh, we should, I think, be opening up to other disciplines to have more ways of writing up our research, finding new expressions and forms. Um, and, I, and I think it's uplifting to see that the number of journals and outlets are exploring alternative ways of operationalizing their criteria to make sure that you don't kill off all the good ideas and manuscripts because of lack of rigor, um, complying to exactly one mode of, of of publishing. That said, I mean it goes without saying that that you know we, we you know there has to be <laughs> obviously a certain level of rigor in the publications. And uh, but I think it's you know refreshing to think of this not as an iron cage that we're locked into. So speaking of the essences of publications, recently, Eric, you were kind enough to share your thoughts on a draft article that I was working on. And you pointed out that in this discipline there especially needs to be a sort of evidence of supply and demand. What do you think is our supply and demand today? Well, I think we did talk about definitions a little while ago. Um, you know, and all those definitions, including the ones you, you and I quoted, uh, are expand. You know, are about expanding beyond the you know supply side of the discipline. That is the technology side. There needs to be now thinking about what we can do to include the demand side, which is a sort of catch-all phrase for you know uptake, use, perception, and all of that. Um, so if anything, IS you know needs to value those perspectives, and I think we can characterize or even define IS as technology agnostic, meaning that it doesn't have any you know, commitments per se to particular technologies. And if you take the historic view, technologies have come and gone. Uh, and what has largely remained are the tools, the research, you know, the tools, the methods we have at exploring those. So some of us have been around long enough to remember, you know, the last time around when AI was big, you know, the, the first wave and maintaining a sense of history of our field. I think you come away with a lot of tolerance and, and you know, um, wouldn't be 
completely carried away with the latest distant technology, uh, but rather you know remind people that the demand side is always there. Without it, it would you know our field would degenerate into just you know publishing you know particular types of technologies. So going back to your earlier questions. Um, with IS, there is and has to be, uh, I think, a commitment to taking both sides seriously, the supply and the demand side. And perhaps that's the definition we're looking for. Yeah, that's an interesting insight and maybe very practical for those who are thinking about what their paper is lacking or how to shape an argument that they're making. And when writing a paper, to be mindful of striking a balance between the supply and demand side. If prompted, I'd say that, uh, you know, something along the lines that, you know, particular certain, you know, technologies uh, do have the potential to do something to, as it were, produce outcomes. Um, but that the field of IES, IS um, is all about looking into the, you know, conditions and processes and all that, which on the right on the pin those consequences, that is, the conditions for realizing the, the, the potential in the first place. And there is a certain limit to the demand side, because if you only consider it, you know, that side, I think a fair argument would be, um, why don't leave this just to the social scientist who, you know, on the face of it, should be better placed to understand that. And to me, the answer to that concern is that we need a firm grasp of, of both the supply side together with the demand side. And the key is really that relationship. And that doesn't get reduced to either or, uh, either the supply or the demand side. Um, instead, it you know complies to the logic of one plus one equals three, not two or one, but three. So yeah, there is something there which we would would be our competitive competitive advantage vis-a-vis, uh, -vis, say, the you know classical social scientist. I think this supply and demand idea also links to the present of information systems posed by Petter et al. in 2012, where they describe sort of these eras of information systems where from the 50s to the 60s was the era for data processing and management reporting. Decision-making was more prevalent from the 60s to the 80s, and then rose the era of uh, strategy and personal computing, which was only a decade long, from the approximately the 80s to the 90s. And then enterprise systems and, and networking made an absolute boom from the 90s to 2000. And now we're sort of in this customer-focused era to present day, but if we're going to buy the notion of their classification of dates now in 2021, we've broached slightly past that decade barrier. And maybe we've shifted away from purely customer-centric demand-side thinking. What are your thoughts on this? Well, that's a good question. It's difficult not to recognize some of the tendencies that come out of such a clarification. But to me, being hung up on customers is, you know, is quite limiting. It's quite obvious that there are a number of issues where thinking only in terms of customers would have shortcomings. I mean, for one, it's overly individualistic or you know, it's like an atomistic 
actors. Um, so, you know, the whole business of, you know, the social organization, you know, the fabric of social life, uh, belonging to communities, organizations, um, disappear. Um, so much of the, you know, institutional and, 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 you know, social theory theorizing around social life would go out the window, which, you know, clearly would be a pity. We would also miss out on, on the much richer vocabulary of users and stakeholders, you know, with different clients. You know, if, if you know, if, if it's all translated into customers, I find that, you know, wrapping it up as customers, you know, is flattening rather than elevating the richness of differences and variances in the phenomena of users. And, and I think you can see these tendencies played out in discussions on agile, agile development, um, now all wrapped up in customers, and not the least around digital platforms, where you know the prominence of, of these consumer-oriented platforms, the Apple iOS and the like, puts, I think, all too much emphasis on the, you know, users understood as customers, missing out on, on what I just pointed out. Well, despite my predilections for the demand side, without having the context and the shaping and influential aspects from an organizational perspective as well, uh, really does take away from the narrative of what makes and shapes what we discuss interesting. I definitely agree with what you say about flattening or, or diminishing by groups as we tend to do since we like classifications and that's not specific to our domain. It's sort of human nature to want to classify things and classify people as just customers, maybe overlooks opportunities for seeing breadth and depth in different roles and different hats that we all wear. Exactly. So if consumer behavior happens to be exactly what you want to pursue, you know, fair enough. But, um, I don't think that's really what's happened when, when people talk about their emphasis or emphasize, you know, customers or the consumer perspective. It is something, um, you know, somewhat more imperialistic in ambition, I would say, that uh, often it's an approach that, that, you know, risk treating the whole spectrum of stakeholders through the narrow lens of customers or consumers. So we're just about the end of the second part of our podcast time here. And now maybe we can shift our perspective to briefly consider the future of IS, as we were alluding to at the end of our discussion about customers. Although I would never ask you to predict the future by gazing into your crystal ball and know exactly where our community is going or what our, exactly what our object of study will become, but maybe you have some thoughts on what the interest in phenomenon is and how you think that will shape our future. Clearly, that's a big question. One part of it is in line with uh, what we talked about a little while ago, that you know, we might move away from the phenomena if we are restricted to a specific community, including the IS community. Um, rather, the, the you know, phenomena of digitalization has seeped into the everyday vocabulary. Um, you know, you can you can tell your mum that you studied digitalization or mention it over a dinner party or whatever. Um, and this is a completely new experience. Um, 
you could never, you know, in earlier times, you know, at dinner parties or pub or whatever, uh, tell strangers or, or guests what you were doing. You know, it sounded just bizarre. Um, and, and something like, say, you know, active network theory wasn't great dinner entertainment, let me tell you that. I agree. It is sort of an interesting phenomenon to experience. Although I can't account to having a lot of dinner parties in the last year, I do think a lot of people respond with at least some level of knowledge or understanding of what it is that, that I'm doing, or at least working with, uh, in terms of digital transformation. And um, to be able to, to hold a conversation with my mother remains to be seen about my my area of work, but uh, I, I do understand what it is that you're, you're trying to convey here. It does seem to be absolutely evident that the, the trends and topics of today for information systems have been embraced by society almost at, at large because of uh, how we can interact with the buzzwords in, in social settings. So what I'm saying is that there is something profound um, here, which is captured by everyday language. Um, our phenomena used to be a more specialized thing that was something IS people were interested in, if not alone, uh, you know, largely on their own. But, but now it seems to be a phenomena that everyone is experiencing at some level. But obviously, people have distinctly different understandings of what digitalization really is and entails if you start prodding them. But at least we seem to share that, you know, there is something common here or shared. And I find that interesting in itself and something that's quite novel. And beyond the everyday language, uh, you know, the level of everyday language, it also seeps into so many other disciplines, you know, humanities, social scientists, cultural theory, who in other ways than before will have something to say about the influence and the uptake understanding of this animal that we call digitalization. And this, to me, is, is really the big thing that is happening, which means that a number of IES venues, conferences, journals, and the like, um, you know, even the ones uh, priding themselves of, of, you know, being big tent communities, is at a certain level a kind of centralized model in, in the sense that we're open to others as long as you come into my tent. Whereas if something along the lines I, I, I outlined uh, just now is, is correct, I think that we end up with a more networked discipline. IS people will have to move on a regular basis out of our tent, engage with and visit, seek out other disciplines and their venues, their big tents. So, you know, not only stay in our tent, but have a peak in others. And this clearly would have implications for, for you know, scholarship in digitalization. Well, I, for one, am excited about what you just described, the opportunities that it affords and how interdisciplinary potential of information systems across these tents and structures are a great potential for greater breadth of knowledge because of the blending 
of different backgrounds. And that will continue to shape and make IS for what it represents and hopefully hybridizes opportunities for interesting introspections into phenomena. How correct or accurate are we be about this prediction remains to be seen. Uh, I regularly think get it wrong. Um, but it could be, you know, it, it could well be that it's more my sort of academic personality or, or, or preference speaking that is, you know, an, an expression of hope or aspiration. Um, I do certainly get a bit nervous when, when um, you know, the tendencies of normal science develop too much and that we, you know, become too comfortable with what we have. Um, and, and I think this, this would be a strong remedy against that. So, you know, as a minimum, it's wishful thinking um, and, um, you know, how plausible it is, we'll see. Well, luckily, we're in a position to help make that vision become a reality by shaping how we study, who we study with, and what tents we choose to publish in. I quite like your your vision of the future of information systems, and I hope it's something that I personally get to engage with and help influence the changes that will inevitably take place in this discipline. This is the end of Episode 2, Part 2 where we've been joined by guest Eric Montero. Thank you, Eric, for joining. Your thoughts and perspectives about the information systems discipline have been very valuable to listen to, and I appreciate the the time that you've spent here on the IS Digest podcast. Thanks. So listeners, thank you for joining for the second part, and if you enjoyed the episode, please feel free to to share with your friends and colleagues who might be interested in some of the things that we discussed here today. The Ice Digest podcast is available on all major podcast platform distribution channels, and I'm also accessible through Twitter if you have any comments or questions to post. So that's all for me. This is Cassandra Grundstrom signing off from NTNU in Trondheim. Take care. Bye.